0: So in your Bible, Acts chapter 26, I want to start by looking at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, this is Paul, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul preached the gospel back in the first century to the Roman imperial elites, he described his own message as true and rational rational but to the listeners he seemed out of his mind in our society today what Christians think is true and rational about sexuality appears to be sheer madness to an increasing number of people we are in a similar position today as Paul before Festus we look to be out of our minds And it hasn't always been this way here in America. In fact, for over a thousand years in Western societies, Christian beliefs have been the deep background of the ways society as a whole thought about issues, including sex. However, since the mid-20th century, this has begun to change. Large segments of the population in the West, including here in the United States, for the first time in a millennia, have begun to embrace a truly different view of life, a view that we call secular. And I'm not using that in a negative sense. I'm trying to name an alter a different view. We now live in a secular age. And one of the ways this has played out over the last few years is that people who have grown up in churches, churches that have held the historic Orthodox Christian view of sexuality. People that have grown up in these churches and have gone through the children's ministries and go to youth group, they suddenly say to their parents, at least it feels suddenly to their parents, well, you know, if two people love each other, why can't they just have sex? What's wrong with that? And so maybe the parents or whomever at the church says, well, you know, the Bible says and it doesn't work. What happened? How do we account for this shift in view regarding right and wrong among people in the church? I think when we try to figure this out, the work of Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist, His work is very helpful for us to understand what's going on. Now, some of you know of Jonathan Haidt. Some of you introduced me to him. He was at UVA for 16 years, and now he's at New York University. And he has this book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And in this book, he shows that typically we don't logically reason our way to moral views, So we have a hard time explaining why we see something as morally right and wrong. We just know in our guts what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. Now applying this insight into morality on our issue today, what I'm saying is that for many generations of Christians, the historic Christian vision of sexuality struck them as right, not... They reasoned their way to it, but they felt it in their gut that it was right. It just made sense. They had this intuitive sense that something was wrong, for example, with two men having sex. It didn't need to be explained. It just was. Now, as an aside. Unfortunately, this, this kind of moral intuition way of thinking, it's been in the driver's seat behind an untold amount of harm done to gays and lesbians. When people see same-sex practice as gross or disgusting, they, they, they can have a hard time acting in ways that aren't callous or bigoted or homophobic or ultimately dehumanizing. And this is a really important issue for us to face up to, and we're going to come back to that in our eighth session where we focus on same-sex attraction. But the point at hand for tonight is that for many people in our society, homosexual acts are not gross. And here's the important point. This this view of same-sex intimacy typically doesn't come from reasoning your way up to it, whether you're against it or for it. Very few people reason their way to views of sexuality. Our views of sexuality are typically based on moral intuitions, not reasons. And these moral intuitions reside at a deeper level than our heads, our minds, our intellect. They reside in our hearts, in our guts, in our instincts. For people who hold a traditional Christian view and for people who hold an alternative, a different view. For both of them. It's not that Christians are being logical and non-Christians are being ill illogical or being kind of instinctual. And it's vice versa. That both of these groups in our society, this is Jonathan Haidt's excellent work, is that most of our moral thinking comes out of instincts. Now, I accept this work. I think it's excellent. I think it's right on the money. So the question for us is if our view of sexuality doesn't come from reason, if it comes from intuition, what gives us our intuitions? And this is my main point for tonight. Our moral intuitions come primarily not from reason, not from facts, but from stories. We typically absorb our view of right and wrong. Our feelings about things. Our beliefs about this stuff. We absorb it. We don't think it. We, it's, it ekes into us. We don't logically arrive at it. And it ekes into us. It seeps into us. We absorb it from stories. And there are... Three stories that our society tells over and over and over in very good ways, entertaining ways, wonderful ways, catchy ways, through, sto- through songs and movies and commercials and novels and TV shows and Amish romantic no- books and Facebook rants and Snapchat pictures three basic plot lines that get told over and over and over that shape our views on sexuality. One of these plot lines has to do with identity, one has to do with freedom, and one has to do with erotic love, romance. Tonight, we're going to deal with the the deep stories our culture is telling on, on issues of identity, that end up shaping our moral intuitions. Next week we'll do the deep stories on freedom and then the following week we'll do the deep stories on romance. Tonight we're gonna look at the narratives of identity that fund our moral intuitions about sex. And to do that, I'm gonna break tonight's lecture down into three parts. First, what story does our secular age tell about identity? Two, what's good and what's broken in the story our secular age tells about identity? And three, what's the Christian story about identity that should fund our moral intuitions? So three parts. First of all, identity in our secular age. Now when it comes to the stories our society tells about our identity, there are two primary components that we have time to deal with tonight. The first is going to take almost all of my time, and then I'll just mention the second. The first and most important plot line in our movies, and our commercials, our TV shows, our advertisements, our Facebook posts, the first and most important story that we tell each other about identity is this. Identity comes from within. When it comes to the question in our secular age, who am I, our society has a deep-rooted conviction, both in the church and outside of the church, that you find yourself, your real self, by looking within. The real you is discovered in your deepest dreams and desires. Think about how many times you have asked somebody who's trying to find their way in life, what are you passionate about? When you ask that question, you're operating out of a deep story that says identity is rooted within. That your fundamental identity is at your fundamental desire level. Think about the musical, The Sound of Music. There's this moment where, when the mother superior sings to Maria, played by Julie Andrews, and she tells the young Maria that she must climb every mountain, search high and low, follow every byway, every path you know, climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow till you find your dream. It's not my generation that made this up, it's Sheldon's. I mean, just (laughs) put the blame where it belongs. And then she goes on, a dream that will need all the love you can give every day of your life for as long as you live. This is the fundamental narrative arc of the modern hero. Whether it's a country western song or a Christian romance novel or a Super Bowl commercial or a movie. And we've been told this story a thousand million times in wonderful ways. We've cheered for it. We've sung it. We've cried it. We've given awards to it so many times that we've, we've absorbed it right into our root gut level intuition. And so this view of identity seems obvious. It seems common sense. It seems like, of course. I mean, has anybody ever asked you when you said to them, what are you passionate about? What if they said why? And what if they then said why three more times? Do you think you could ever ultimately defend it? Like, do you see that it's kind of a root belief? And as a result, it just appears to be self-evident truth. But there are other societies that tell different stories about identity, alternative views of identity. For example, the traditional non-Western approach to identity is very different. In the traditional non-Western approach, you're in a family, a people group. And the family and the people group assign you a role and a set of responsibilities and duties that go with that role. And your identity is wrapped up. Your sense of self-worth and your significance, your sense of yourself is wrapped up, not in your dreams and desires, but in doing your duty and fulfilling your role in discharging your responsibility. And so if if you ask a person in a traditional culture or a non-Western culture, if you ask this person, who are you? They'll most likely say something like, I'm a daughter or a father or a member of a particular tribe and people. I've got a a role in the family. I've got a role in my people. And the way this person has a sense of self-worth comes from, from the family bestowing honor on them because there are moments when they sublimate their own interest for the good of the whole. And in that culture, that's when you get worth. That's how you know who you are, that you're a good person. Here's an example. The way a person who's Korean writes their name, they give their family name first and their personal name second. And that's a very good expression of identity in a non-Western culture. You are your duties. You are your role. It is assigned to you. And if you fulfill your duties and give up your individual desires for the good of the whole, the family, or the community, then your identity is secure as a person of honor. But in our society, our approach to identity says that you are your dreams. You are your desires. In fact, if you ask someone, who are you? And they say, well, you know, I work at so-and-so. Some of you might reply to them, no, I didn't ask what you do. I asked who you are. And you feel like that's the trump card that takes them to the essence of themselves. No, it's the trump card that takes them to the heart of secularism. That's a worldview that we've just bought into that we own. And so in our society, your deepest self-worth depends upon the dignity that you bestow upon yourself and to have a really strong identity, your deep desires need to push against conformity. This is a moral absolute in our culture today. Be true to yourself. Okay, now remember what we're doing. We're naming the stories our society tells about identity that shape our gut level views of sexuality. And the first story is that the source of your identity is within. You find your real identity by looking within and discovering your own deepest dreams and desires. That's the first issue. The second, And and I'm not trying to say that the traditional one is right and, and the secular one is wrong. I'm just trying to show you these are two different ways of living and different cultures have different ways and they accept their way as kind of like the obvious way. I'm just trying to name it. All right, the second issue, the second set of stories our culture tells about identity that deeply shape our moral intuition about sexuality, the second one is this, sex is central to your identity. The essayist and cultural journalist Kristen Dombeck, writing for the New York Times back in 2015, observed, quote, 60 years after Kimsey, the Kimsey Report, many of us have come to regard sex, preferably passionate, hot, transformative sex, as central to our lives. In the words of Mark Regnerus, a sociologist from University of Texas at Austin, After extensive research on the sexual lives of young adults in America, he says, great sex is now a priority. It is a hallmark of the good life. So what's happened is that over the last couple of centuries, we've begun to believe that our sexual desires reveal a fundamental truth about who we are. And that we have an obligation to seek out that truth and express it. Finding sexual orientation is part of how we come to know ourselves and present ourselves to others. Our society places sexual expression and sexual orientation right at the heart of a person's identity. And and so the dominant language regarding sex, sociologists who scour the literature and analyze this stuff, they say there's been a shift in the last 25 years. We're no longer talking as much about sexual desires. Now in the literature, over and over, the, the phrase is sexual needs. That's a new thing quality sexual experiences are perceived to be just as pivotal to human flourishing as clean air, potable water, edible food, ample shelter, and antibiotics. And our urge to have sex is both more irresistible and more fundamental to personal identity than other impulses and appetites. All right, so first your identity comes from within. And second, sex is central to your identity. Now, let's put these two together. The story our secular age tells about identity goes like this. Each one of us has an inner self, whether you're Elsa in Frozen or Maria in, in um, The Sound of Music or pick probably your favorite TV show. That each one of us has an inner self, a true self, and we have a moral obligation to discover that self and express it to the world. And this true self includes an innate sexual identity. And being true to yourself regardless, or even preferably in spite of societal and family and religious pressures, this is one of our highest virtues, and it leads to our greatest fulfillment and happiness. Hypocrisy used to mean, in a traditional culture, doing something inconsistent with your beliefs. In our secular age, hypocrisy means doing something inconsistent with your feelings. Now, let's evaluate this narrative. And there's so much good about it. There is so much good in the secular story of identity. I mean, once upon a time, there was a rigid... Exploitative, this is the second part of my lecture if you're taking notes, the good, the bad, and the ugly in our secular approach to identity. Once upon a time, there there was a rigid exploitative social stratification that stemmed, it was rooted in the traditional understanding of identity. You were, you're rung on the socially stratified culture ladder. You related to the world, not as an individual, but through your family and your class. And your mission in life was to know your place and fulfill your assigned role. And there was no way out and there was no mobility. We should give thanks that the secular view of identity has cracked open that caste system. Think about how our secular age has embraced equality, And and how this has given the fight for equity a moral quality that has rarely existed in human history. Our secular age is intensely moral in many ways. It is more committed to social justice, universal benevolence, and human rights than any civilization in the history of the world. And this is because of what's going on with identity. This is because in the enlightenment, there was this tilt toward the individual. The sacredness of the individual. And this is given finally, finally, a generation of women who have been subjected to psychological or physical abuse. They finally live in a moment where our society is beginning to offer them a way out from under the vice-like grip of controlling husbands. In our secular age, we've finally been able to bring women's skills and gifts into the world of commerce and government, and it is rooted in this shift on identity. People who have been sexually abused and discriminated against by establishment elites are just now beginning to be able to stand up and fight for their rights. And wherever we come across the defeat of injustice and unfairness, Christians should be among the first to celebrate it because this reflects the heart of God. In other words, the good old days weren't that good for a whole bunch of people. They were good for WASP, but not much beyond that. Our society, prior to the secular term, was not a great place to live for a whole bunch of people. There was slavery in in its pre-Civil War form of chattel slavery, and its post-Civil War form of Jim Crow, and its post-Civil Rights form of mass incarceration. We've just shifted it. We must be thankful for our secular age elevating tolerance and a compassion-driven morality and freedom and personal choice. So much good ground has been gained. There is a reason our secular age is winning. There is a reason that our society is moving beyond the traditional modern age. It's because the golden past had its chance and now our secular age represents the hopes and dreams of millions and millions and millions of people who see in secularism their best hope. And yet, there are cracks developing in our secular age. The way our secular society approaches identity has some problems three in particular that I'll point out this evening. First of all, there's a deep deceit in our secular approach to identity. Secondly, there's a deep confusion. And third, there is a a very real insecurity. First of all, our society is not telling the truth about where identity comes from. We've been sold a deceit. And to show this, I'm going to still blatantly a story from Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, and um, he's put this in several books and, and lots of his sermons and lectures he's given, and I'm just going to rip it off. It's, it's very helpful for recognizing how our secular um, account of, of the inwardness of identity is deceitful. It's a thought experiment. Imagine that you're an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in around the year AD so a long time ago, 1,200 years ago. And imagine that this Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain, he has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. When people show him disrespect, he likes to respond violently. He really likes fighting. He likes battle. He likes to smash and kill people. And, when, and remember, when this guy looks into his heart, that's there. But remember, this guy has two things going on in his heart. The first is this, this, this aggression The second thing going on in our Anglo-Saxon warrior's heart is a deep-seated same-sex attraction. And for as long as he can remember, he's been drawn, even as a child, to other males in some vaguely confusing way. And then after puberty, he came to realize that he has a steady, strong, unrelenting, exclusive sexual attraction to other men. Okay, so we're doing a thought experiment. This Anglo-Saxon warrior, he's living, as we know, in a shame and honor culture with a warrior ethic. And so he would probably look inside and see this feeling of aggression, and he would say to himself, that's me. That's who I am. I will express that. And he would have no shame and no regret over his feelings of aggression or his violent and aggressive behaviors. At the same time, when it comes to his erotic desire for other men, he will feel shame, and he'll say to himself, that's not me. I will control and suppress that desire. Okay, in our thought experiment, let's shift. Let's imagine a man today walking down the streets of New York City, and when he looks into his heart, he has these two same deep impulses, violent aggression and erotic same-sex attraction. And they're both equally strong. And they're both difficult to control. What will he say when he looks inside himself? He will look at the aggression and think, that's not who I am. And he'll go to therapy or some anger management group or program. And and when when it comes to that part of him, he will work against it and fight it. But when it comes to a sexual desire, he'll conclude, that's who I am. Now, what this illustration shows us is how deceitful our view of an inward identity really is. It shows us how it's an illusion to think identity is simply an expression of inward desires over against societal expectations. You have many strong feelings, and in one sense, they are all a part of you. But just because they're there doesn't mean you express them all. No one identifies with all of their deep desires. No, all of us, we use a filter, we have a filter, a, a set of beliefs and values that, that we use to shift through our hearts and determine which emotions and sensibilities we will value and incorporate into our core identity and which ones we want. And it is this value-laden filter that shapes your identity. It is not simply your inner desires. Now, where do we get this filter from? We get it from the same place this uh, Anglo-Saxon warrior got his from. And the same place this uh, same-sex attracted man in New York City gets his from. We get it from people around us. Some group of people we trust then we take this set of values into ourselves and we make sense of ourselves through the lens of this set of values. We prioritize some things we find inside of us and we reject other things. It's misleading to the point of dishonesty to say, I just have to be myself no matter what anybody else says. Because yourself is defined by what the group of people around you are telling you. Our inner depths on their own or insufficient for our identities. To put it another way, identity is not determined by feelings and desires alone. It is determined by feelings and desires filtered through beliefs our society gives us. My point is simply that the modern person is less free than she thinks. And yes, it's true that the modern person has a wider range of options That's true, and that's good, but it is foolish to ignore the force of today's cultural expectations about how she should choose her identity. The power of culture to shape attitudes and expectations is no less today. The difference between today and then is today we think it doesn't exist, and so we're more vulnerable to self deception So that's the first problem with the secular approach to identity. It traps us in the reinforcement loop of self-deceit. The second problem is that focusing your deepest desires, looking at them, finding them, can be really confusing. What do you do when you, are, when you very much want a certain career, but then you fall in love with someone and, and you want to be with them very much, but the nature of your particular career and the nature of this person, you can't have both. What do you do when you look inside and you have contradictory, mutually exclusive desires? Well, you might say, I find whichever is deeper, but that is naive. Our deep desires are not arranged in an orderly, hierarchical way, our deep desires don't harmonize, they fight. Sigmund Freud told us this, he said our innermost being is filled with, in his words, unsociable chaos for desires for power and love and comfort and control which vie with one another and would trample on each other if they could to reach their own goals. Our inner desires change. They're contradictory. So an identity based on our dreams and desires at best will be unstable. And so this can be really frustrating. You can never know if there are aspects of yourself that you've left undeveloped and undiscovered. A third problem with the modern approach to identity is that it can be crushing. In traditional societies, if you were simply a good son or daughter, husband or wife, father or mother, you were doing everything your society required. And while that could be smothering and confining, it was a pretty low bar. The philosopher... Alain de Botton, who's an atheist, by the way, he's not trying to make a Christian point. He's written a very important book called Status Anxiety. He makes the strong point that modern identity creates far more anxiety than identity in traditional cultures. The modern process of identity formation tells you to go out and create a self from scratch. Identify your dreams, especially the most vivid ones, and fulfill them or feel like a failure. That prospect crushes so many people in our society where money, looks, power, success and sophistication and romantic love all become not just good things but necessary things to succeed. Because of this pervasive insecurity, this this is driving a pervasive insecurity in our society. Our society, in response to this, has become drunk on affirmation. Right? If I'm, if I'm insecure inside, I need you to affirm me because I'm so fragile. And a society drunk on affirmation is producing a chilling effect on free speech and on college campuses. And there's a growing body of research to indicate that the recent increase in self-harm and associated borderline issues among young people is partly attributable to the fragility of the self in a secular society. There are cracks in the secular approach to identity. Now, lots of good stuff, some bad stuff. What about the Christian approach to identity? What is it, and is it any better? Third section of tonight's lecture. Where does an identity come from according to the Christian view? Well, there's some real overlap with the secular view. First of all, the Bible places a high priority on the inner life on the heart, on passion, on love. But but our secular age goes farther. It, it's taken the importance of our inner life, our passions and desires, and it has enthroned them. It's made ourself the center of our world so that we relate everything to ourselves. Now, a good way to see how the Bible handles the hero narrative and the identity narrative differently is to look at the most famous hero story in the Bible, David and Goliath. Here's a young man, and he takes on a military champion in single hand-to-hand combat against overwhelming odds. But does David, in the climactic moment of the David and the Goliath story, in the climactic moment, right? In the climactic moment of our hero narratives in our story today the hero looks in finds himself and rises up and speaks their truth but in the climactic moment of the David and Goliath story what does David do does he look inside himself for help and deliverance and clarity no at the dramatic climactic point of the story listen to what David says 1st Samuel chapter 17 verse 37 David said the Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. And then again in verse 47 all those gathered here will know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, talking about Goliath, into our hand. Friday night, my family and I watched a great movie, Dream Girls. Lots of fun. We were dancing, singing, well, sort of. The climactic moment of the movie. So, do you know what cl- a climax is in a, in a narrative arc? The climax is the moment where the conflict reaches its height and it, it breaks over, and then things can be resolved out of that. So, the climactic moment of a story, the climactic moment of Friday night of Dream Girls was Beyonce. When Beyonce looked up at her jerk of a husband, and she sang a song called Listen. And she sang it really good. And I would have listened if she had been singing at me. (laughs) This is the moment that David says, the Lord who delivered me, that, that's the climactic moment of the Dave Glass. The climactic moment of dream girls, listen, this is what it is first word. Listen to the song here in my heart, a melody I start but can't complete. Listen to the song from deep within, it's only beginning to find release. Oh, the time has come for my dreams to be heard. They will not be pushed aside and turned into your own, all cause you won't listen. Listen, I'm alone at a crossroads. I'm not at home in my own home. And she sings that line really good. You should listen to it. <laughs> I almost started doing it, but then I realized it would not sound to you like it sounds to me. I've tried and tried to say what's on my mind. You should have known. Now, I'm done believing you. You don't know what I'm feeling. I'm more than what you've made of me. I followed your voice. You gave to me, but now I've got to find my own. You should listen. And it goes on and on like that. Now, look, here's the deal. There is such a thing as women who are being crushed by controlling husbands. And that's an important narrative arc. The problem is that's the only logic we have for solving a conflict, which is look deep inside, view whatever the conflict is as oppression, and then find your inner self and rise against it. The problem is not with that story. It's that it's the only story we're telling, so we're beginning to think of life that way. We're all beginning to think of how we're being oppressed, and we've got to rise up, and we're all reading reality through that story because we're absorbing it into our bones. But the David and Goliath story, in the climactic moment, you could, I could have picked on Frozen and let it go. What does she say in the climactic moment? I'm going to, all right, I'm going to become myself. There's a, there's a part of me that you need to hear, or the sound of music, or whatever, or Rocky, or... The climactic moment of the David and Goliath story makes the point that we must look outside ourselves and connect to something else if we are ever going to become our true self. It's no, the story of David is no less about becoming his true self. It's just about how does he get there. David puts his trust in another hero, one greater than himself. The plot doesn't resolve through self-reliance. It resolves through opening himself up to God. And we, and we don't hear that story told in our culture. The anti-self-reliant story. And so we adopt the view. Remember, this, we don't think about the stuff. We just absorb it. So even if you're in a church that's teaching the traditional historic view of sexuality, you can never fight a story with a fact. The fact will lose every time stories have bigger muscles than propositions that's why the bible's shaped like a story that's why when it introduces mark said i'm going to tell you the gospel of jesus he didn't give you a set of propositions he gave you the story stories versus facts or propositions or truths stories always win and so we've got a whole generation that grew up in historic orthodox churches that were told the truth this is what happened I'll come back to that. Okay. The second, the second thing about the Christian view of identity. This, this issue of sex being essential to your character. Again, there is so much truth in what our secular age is telling us. And first of all, your sex, sexuality is very important. Uh, I mean, uh, whoever came up with the term safe sex was a liar. No, no sex is safe. I mean, you're, you can create a human being. You can alter world history. And think about all the emotional kind of complexity that comes out of sex and relational complexity. I mean, I think if we took sex out of the world, Sean Slevin and all the other therapists in our church would lose most of their income. It is, it is never safe. It is, it is... The problem is that we've enthroned sexuality at the center. Rather than being a dynamic part of our character, to be trained and shaped, sexuality has come to be viewed as part of our personality. Something that not only is freely expressed as a reflection of our uniqueness, it also establishes our uniqueness. When the Christian vision of sexuality... what what the Christian vision rejects here is seeing sexual expression as the virtue that lies right next to the heart of your identity and that you can only be fulfilled and happy and mature when you are sexually expressing yourself. In other words, yes, our sexuality is powerful. Almost nothing we do is as freighted with as many potential consequences as sexual relations. And yet, sex is not essential to identity. Case in point, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the best vision we have of a true human, fully human. Fully God and fully human. And one of the most important truths we should reflect on from Jesus' earthly life is this. No one was more fully human or sexually contented than Jesus, but Jesus never had sex. Think about it. Jesus never enjoyed the pleasures of sex. He never enjoyed an erotic touch or a lingering kiss, and he never indulged sexual fantasy or lust of the kind that he roundly condemns. Even though Scripture says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet When we look at Jesus in the Bible, we see a compelling, attractive person who engages seriously with people around him. He's great fun at a party. He is fully human, fully himself, and totally celibate. Now, in our hyper-sexualized contemporary culture, it is almost inconceivable that someone could be sexually chaste, celibate, and still... Be fully at peace. Our culture believes that sexual activity is the most direct path to personal fulfillment and self-realization, to being truly human and fully alive. Our society has a deep-seated belief that to deny yourself sexual experience is to undermine your health, your humanity. But Jesus' life deconstructs this powerful cultural myth. From his life, we learn that sexual activity is not essential to human flourishing, married or unmarried. Jesus found contentment with his sexuality even though he was celibate. To be blunt, he did not need sex Not because sex is sinful or somehow beneath his dignity, but because sex is not essential to being human. See, we've absorbed, the church has absorbed the views just as much as people outside of the church. The Son of God was biologically sexed. He had testicles. He had a scrotum. He had testosterone. He had armpit hair. He went through puberty. He had all the things that you and I know about being sexed. And yet he was fully content in life. Now this was not an easy pain-free existence, but it But he did have a whole deeply and richly human life. And this is a remarkable fact that confronts all of us. Whether we're same-sex attracted or straight or married or single. A teenager looking forward to sex or someone who's outlived the possibility of sex. The life of Jesus confronts our secular culture and the evangelical church as well in some very uncomfortable ways. And it says to us, you don't need sex to be human, to be fully satisfied. Jesus didn't, and he was supremely satisfied in God. In the biblical vision of sexuality, we learn that no one is defined by their sexual identity, by their sexual desires or orientation or inclination or attractions. Sure, we have different sexual desires and impulses and interests. But the deepest answer to the deepest question of who we are is found not in our sexual orientation or attractions, but in our common human nature. The deepest truth about who we are is that each one of us is a male or female made in the image of God, loved by God, and therefore deserving full dignity. Now, that brings us to the end of the material for tonight. We've covered a lot of ground, so I want to summarize. When it comes to sexuality and sex and gender and human flourishing in our society today, our views sit on top of what social psychology calls moral intuition. We don't reason our way up to what we think is good or bad or right or wrong about sex. We have gut-level feelings about it. And our gut level feelings about what is right and wrong come from the deep stories that we are taking into ourselves. Stories about identity and freedom. And romantic love. And tonight we've looked at our story-shaped views of identity. And about the basic moral intuition of our secular age. That each one of us has an inner, a true self. And this true self includes an innate sexual identity. And so to be healthy and whole and fulfilled. We have to discover our deepest desires and longings. And do all we can to realize them. Regardless of constraint or opposition. Being true to yourself regardless or even in spite of religious norms, societal norms, family norms. This is one of our highest virtues and it's what leads to our greatest fulfillment and happiness. And this is driven by so many well-told stories and songs and commercials and architecture and logos, and we absorb it into our bones, and this is why you are crazy to think that the traditional Christian view of sexuality is logical. This is why the view feels irrational, unkind, and all of those things. And this is why many of you who are my parents' age And you raised your children indoctrinating them in this view. They disagree with you. Because we were fighting the pagan hordes at the gate. By denying our children access to movies that had blatant sex in it. And we let the Trojan horse of Disney with its stories about identity come right into the room. And you know what? The stories our culture tells about identity more powerfully shape us than pornography. You can't fight a story with a fact, but there's hope because we've got the greatest story that there's ever been, and we'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. Should we fight pornography? Should we fight at the gate? Yeah, but don't let the Trojan horse in. You know how that story ends, don't you?